1: All right, it's time. Here on a Wednesday afternoon, thanks for joining me. This is Bob Lapine sitting in this afternoon. Those of you who are thinking, wait, wait, this is not family life today, that's right, a little out of order. In fact, we'll talk about family stuff because all of life intersects with relationships and with family but we're gonna we're gonna travel some different lanes this afternoon and i'm glad you're with me and and tuned in and uh along for the ride uh i was i was with a group of moms and dads this was i think it was two years ago uh, i was out at forest home have you been to forest home the camp out in the san bernardino mountains Uh, I I was speaking at a family camp out at Forest Home uh, two summers ago. And after I had gotten done speaking that morning, a group of parents pulled me aside and said, could we have lunch with you? And so we sat down and and these moms and dads, from they they live in Pasadena, and they were saying, we are so um, concerned, so anxious, so troubled about... Uh, what's going on in in the school district that our kids are a part of. And I don't know if it was Pasadena schools or what what particular district, but really, at, at this point, lots of districts, right, lots of issues. So they were concerned. I said, "What what are you concerned about? And they started talking about what was going on with curriculum issues. In this case, their concerns, most of them, centered on – Issues related to sex and gender, which is something we're going to talk about tomorrow. Sean McDowell is going to join us to talk about that tomorrow afternoon. Uh, but but uh, I've talked to parents today, and, and sex and gender is one issue. The whole issue of racism and critical race theory is another issue. Uh, the, you may have seen videos online of teachers being videoed in their classrooms who are going on a full political rant with their students, with, with high school students or with, I I saw one with elementary school students where a teacher was saying, you're smarter than your parents. And here's what I'm going to teach you. And you've seen the school board meetings that are going on where the parents are coming up at the school board meetings and, and engaging angrily with the members of the school board passionately about what's going on. And here it is. It's, we're we're headed back to school, right, and a lot of you are thinking what what do I do well how do I send my kids off to school without worrying about what they're gonna hear from a teacher i mean We taught our kids, you respect your teacher. Your teacher is there to, you pay attention to what your teacher is saying. You show respect. We didn't feel like we had to prepare our our kids to say, now, some of what your teacher tells you may not be right. You don't want to say that to your kids. You want your kids to think teachers are somebody you respect. They're They're there to teach you the truth. And yet what's happening in so many classrooms today is not truth it's it's opinion it's in some cases indoctrination which is why a lot of parents are saying we got to rethink this i saw a statistic now i saw this on twitter so you you know you don't take every statistic you see on twitter and go this is this is true but i saw something it looked reputable that before the pandemic 3% of american school-aged children were being homeschooled Post pandemic, I guess we're not really post pandemic today. With the pandemic going on, that number is up to eleven percent of kids being homeschooled. Now I don't know what the, I don't know if that means homeschooled, but some kind of online schooling. I don't know what their their metric is, but there are more kids being schooled at home. In in part because there are parents who are anxious about the virus, but in part because there are moms and dads rightly concerned about what's going to happen in the public school classroom that they're sending their son or daughter off to. In some cases, what's going to happen in the private school classroom, especially if it's a, a private prep type school. as opposed, You would hope you'd have less anxiety about what's going to happen in the Christian school your kids are going to. But what about even there, here's the point, moms and dads have got to have your antenna up. You cannot do what what I think my parents did, which was send me off to school and then not worry about what I was going to be taught. they They just worried about whether my grades were going to be any good. How was my math grade? was I was I mastering the subject? They were not concerned about what ideology was being represented in our in our school classroom. today with the divide that exists in our culture. Around political issues, around cultural issues, uh, there there is a battle going on, and in the school classroom, there are teachers who have gone from teaching to advocating. From they've gone from teaching to to wanting to carry out an agenda. Some of you know this because you've had firsthand experience with it. Some of you are teachers. And by the way, let me just say to teachers, I have great respect for and admiration for some of the hardest working, most selfless, most tireless people in, in talking about anxiety that parents feel about sending their kids off to school. I'm always concerned that a teacher is going to hear this and think, oh, he's down on teachers. no, 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 no. A teacher who says my job is to help kids master subjects and to, to learn, to learn truth. I, that's God bless you. Thank you for what is a, a selfless, tireless responsibility. But many of you who are teachers know what I'm talking about because you have fellow teachers who have gone off the rails and, and, they are more concerned now about ideological indoctrination than they are about what your kids learn in math and science. And I mean, they're importing all kinds of things in under, under the the banner of science. So what, what I want to talk with, with you about this hour is how do we as parents help prepare our kids for for the upcoming school year, in a way that sends them off to the the classroom with with some steadfastness um, in place. I mean, I know some of you got kindergartners, some of you have got high school students, so it's all over the gamut. and And, and we've got to we've got to work on all of this differently. But here's the point: you've you've got to prep your kids for what's coming their way, not only from teachers, some teachers, but you got to prep them for what's coming their way from their peers. I talked to a mom in Southern California. This was a few years ago who said to me in my daughter's middle school classroom, the, the question is no longer, um, are you straight or are you gay? I mean, 14 year olds having that conversation regularly. But now she said, here's how junior high girls are talking about this. She said, my daughter tells me they're saying, well, I think I'm probably 70% straight, but maybe 30% gay. So your child who wants to fit in, wants to be friends, wants to, I mean, junior high, we're all trying to figure out who am I? Do people like me? Do I fit in here? They're sitting around with these conversations and they're afraid, you know, if they say, well, I I think I'm 100% straight. Somebody looks and goes, really? And, and now all of a sudden you're kind of weird because you think you're 100% straight. And then they go, well, maybe I am. And maybe I need to explore. And then they watch a YouTube video. And I mean, it's a, my wife, Marianne, and I looked at each other the other day and said, I don't know what we'd do if we were raising our kids in this era. It's it's a a it's a it's dangerous era. And as, as parents, we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be on guard and we've got to be proactive. I think of it this way. If you were, if you were a Jew living in Babylon during the period of Babylonian captivity, you're living in a culture that doesn't believe in the God of Israel. Um, they, they don't respect your view. They laugh at your view. They deride your view. And if they came to you and said, and you must send your kids to the Babylonian schools, what would you do to get them ready for class? Well, of course, if, if you were a good Jew, before you sent them off to school, you would say the Shema. You would say, uh, the, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You, you would repeat that every day. You would drive home. You would make sure that the spiritual foundation for your kids is something you were being diligent to pour in because that foundation is going to be challenged by some teachers, by, by a lot of peers and, and parents who say, well, our kids go to youth group. So, you know, it's okay. Uh Uh-uh. Look, you have got to be, you've got to be very proactive in making sure you are discipling your kids and having honest conversations with them about spiritual issues. And I will say this. I remember a guest we had on Family Life today who said one of the things moms and dads have to do in today's world, you have to practice putting on your I'm not shocked face. When your child comes home from school and says, hey, mom, what does this word mean? and your first reaction is who told you that word and and where where you just have to go huh tell tell me more ask them questions you've got to not be shocked your kid comes home and goes mom what's what's weed you just instead of freaking out don't freak out so what happened at school who were you talking to i remember hearing a story about a parent whose 7 year old came to them and said you know, Mom, I've got a question. Where did I come from? And the mom gets all tense and thinks, "Okay, I I wasn't ready to have this conversation yet, and I'm not sure I want to go. In, how much detail do I get, go into with the seven year old?" But she takes a deep breath, and then the child says, "Cause, cause uh, Frank at my at school, he he comes from Arizona. So where do I come from?" And the mom takes a deep breath. <laughs> but but we got to be ready for whatever's going to come our way with our kids. And, and we've got to be pouring a spiritual foundation. We've got to be helping them get dressed every day. Ephesians 6 says, we are, all of us, to put on the full armor of God. We have to dress ourselves with the, the, the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, with, with the belt of truth. we we got to make sure our kids are dressed right, before we send them off to school and and I just I want to suggest to you uh, that there are headwinds that we're facing as grown-ups, but these are headwinds that your son or daughter they're going to be facing these in junior high, in high school, even in elementary school. let me let me just give you three headwinds that I think we're facing and that our kids are going to face and that your kids are going to be challenged to think about. And you've got to be ready to have conversations with them about this. It is going to be increasingly unpopular for a junior high or a high school student to stand firm on the idea that what the Bible teaches about the exclusivity of Jesus is true. That is the Bible teaches, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, And the life, no one comes to the father, but by me, your kids are going to be in school with classmates who don't believe that, who practice different religious truth. We have to teach them how to be winsome and kind and gracious and how not to respond and just say, oh, well, if, if you don't believe like I do, then you're going to hell. That's not their first response in these situations. But by the same token, we've got to make sure that our kids understand that we're going to stand on what the Bible teaches. We're going to be steadfast with what the Bible teaches. We're going to hold on to that winsomely and kindly as we interact with people, but we're not going to let that shake. I remember I was speaking one time at a family life weekend to remember marriage getaway in Washington, D.C. I just finished in that conference talking about what, what the Bible has to say about salvation. It's one of the things that we talk about at every weekend to remember getaway. We talk about the spiritual foundation of marriage and we get to a point where we talk about your relationship with Jesus. And we've had tens of thousands of people over the years who have made a profession of faith at a weekend to remember getaway. And, and I had gotten done with this message and I was walking back to lunch and, and, I had a woman stop me and she said, I have a question for you. She said, I've been at the conference, I'm enjoying it. She said, I'm Jewish. She said, When I came, I, I called your your organization and said, I'm Jewish, is this gonna be okay for me? And they said, Yes, they it would be fine. And she said, But it sounded to me like you were just saying that if if I'm Jewish that that I'm I I'm not a I'm not a believer, I don't know God, or I'm I'm going to I'm not going to heaven. And I took a deep breath and I said to myself, I said, well, okay, I guess I was clear in what I said. I mean, tried to be kind, but the message had come through. And I asked her, I said, I said, other than that, I said, is there anything about the conference that you've found offensive or objectionable? No, she said, it's been very good. I've enjoyed it. She said, but I'm just confused. Do you, is that what you think? And I said, well, ma'am here here's the question i said it's not what i think the question is what does the bible teach i said jesus and i quoted john 14 6 jesus said i'm the way the truth and the life nobody comes to the father but by me i said so your issue is really not with me your issues with jesus do you think he was telling the truth there do you think he believed that Do do you think that's right and she wasn't sure how to take that. I mean, she she was ready to engage with me, but when I said, "This is real," I'm just telling you what Jesus said. It was a whole different deal. We, we've got to be ready to winsomely and as compellingly as possible point people to the reality that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And and if if you or your son or your daughter at school is is going to hold to the exclusivity of Jesus in our day you can expect to face headwinds. There may be headwinds from some teachers about this headwinds from classmates about this. And you have to know how to stand firm on that in a way that is not off putting and a way that is not, that doesn't just blow everything up. And sometimes you can't help it. I mean, sometimes the truth is what, what, offends people. You just have to make sure that what offends people is the truth, not your presentation or your son or daughter's presentation of the truth. Here's another headwind. In our day, the the idea that if you believe the Bible is true or trustworthy as a source of absolute truth, you believe the Bible is, is your standard, you're going to be increasingly marginalized. You're going to be dismissed as uneducated or superstitious. You're going to be seen maybe as dangerous some of you are feeling this already when people say when people say i believe in science well i believe in science too but these people are saying they're they're putting science and faith in opposition to one another they're not so how can we express faith and express a belief in science Do you know who neil degrasse tyson is right the physicist He says, we are currently engaged in a war between rationality and superstition. Religion, he says, is but a single brand of superstition. Others include beliefs in astrology, paranormal phenomenon, homeopathy, spiritual healing. But he says religion is the most widespread and harmful form of superstition. So when a physicist says, if you believe in religion, you're superstitious, What does your son or daughter do when they read that in a high school textbook? Or when a teacher says, let me quote a world-renowned physicist on this. If you stand firm on what the Bible teaches, there are going to be people who don't think you're rational or reasonable, or you don't believe in science, or you don't believe in facts. And then that spills over into the third area, which is all about gender and sexuality. If you believe that there are two genders, male and female, two sexes, and that gender is fixed and not fluid and that marriage should be the union between a man and a woman, there are people who are going to dismiss you and and who are going to want nothing to do with you. And if your son or daughter says, I, I believe that there are men and women, I believe there are boys and girls. So I read an article from from an expert in the New York Times, this was a few years ago, and and this was a, a an expert from uh, on anatomy who said, defining gender as a condition determined strictly by a person's genitals is based on a notion that doctors and scientists abandoned long ago as oversimplified and medically meaningless. Doctors and scientists have abandoned that long ago. I'm pretty sure we got some doctors and scientists who are listening right now who are going, wait a second, I haven't abandoned that. And this was somebody who works at Mount Sinai Health Systems in New York. And I thought, that's ironic, isn't it? Mount Sinai Health Systems? And they're saying, no, the idea that your sex is determined by your anatomy at birth, it's not true. We've known it's not true since, for, for decades. Look, these are the headwinds that, we're facing, these are the headwinds your students are facing. So what do you do as a mom, as a dad, how do you help your kids be spiritually dressed and ready for what may be coming in the classroom? Here's what I want us to do. We're going to talk uh, here in just a minute with Rebecca McLaughlin about this because Rebecca is somebody who, honestly, I look at Rebecca as, as a prototype of the right way to engage on these important issues, with so many people. Rebecca is an author. She is she has a a, a Ph.D. in English literature from Cambridge. She has a degree in theology from Oak Hill College in London. Um, she has worked on university campuses around the country for years, uh, making a case for the the reasonableness and the rational of of Christian faith. She's just written a book for parents and teenagers, a book that's called Ten uh, Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity, a great book for moms and dads to go through with their kids. Questions like, Isn't Christianity against diversity? Can Jesus be true for you and not for me? Can we just be good without God? How can you believe the Bible's true? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? I mean, these are the questions your kids are, are about to face. Rebecca's going to join us. We're going to talk about how we help our kids know how to answer these questions and stand steadfast as they head back to school here this fall. We'll take a quick break and be back with Rebecca McLaughlin in just a minute. Stay with us. Welcome back. Welcome back. Bob Lapine, with you this afternoon. We are talking about uh, the fact that back to school is right around the corner, and uh, I'm sure that you're looking at school supplies, and I'm sure that you're I'm, – I'm thinking about what my mom did, which was make sure I had new shoes. I don't know why new shoes was so important at Easter and back to school, but getting new shoes was a big deal. Here's here's the question. Are Are your kids – are they? Is their armor ready as they head back to school with the issues that they're going to be facing in the classroom in from their peer group, maybe from some of their teachers? Are they ready for some of the headwinds that are coming their way in a season of life where they're trying to figure out their own identity and they're hearing all sorts of confusing things? And, and by the way, believing what the Bible says is not the path to popularity in our world today, and are they ready for that? Well, to to help us think through this and to help get our kids prepared, I couldn't think of a better person to to bring into the conversation than Rebecca McLaughlin, who is joining us this afternoon. Rebecca, thank you for carving out some time and for being with us. It's my pleasure. Re- Rebecca is an author. Let me just back up a little bit. She's got a Ph.D. in English literature from Cambridge Uh, a degree in theology from Oak Hill College in London. She has worked on college campuses for years. Two years ago, three years ago, she wrote a book called Confronting Christianity, which was a a book of the year um, and a book that I I took everyone at our church through uh, chapter by chapter just because these are the issues of our day. And then just recently, uh, Rebecca has written a book for parents and for teens, uh, called 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity which is is really kind of the 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 grown-up book put in a in a format that helps teens engage with a lot of these issues and and Rebecca I think we need to back up so that our listeners get the right perspective you didn't grow up going to Sunday school right
2: Julia, you know, I grew up in a, a sort of mixed Christian family. Um, with yeah, a, a family that on one side was, you know, going to church because it was a cultural thing to do in England at the time. If you if you came from a certain place, um, you know, some folks in the family who I think had a sincere faith and others who didn't at all. Um, but I was from a, an early age in very sort of secular educational environments. Actually, with very you know vast majority of my friends not only not Christians, but actually which come from families and themselves have strong objections to Christianity. So I felt like I had an opportunity early on to, to really kind of test, test the metal of what um, I believe myself in, in conversation with really smart people who frankly disagreed with me.
1: Would that have been you in high school? Did, were you opposed to the Christian faith?
2: No, in high school, I was very much um, a, a vocal about my faith in Jesus. But the vast majority of my high school friends and even the teachers at my high school, and frankly even the guy who was teaching religion at my high school um, was was very much against what I was saying, so it was yeah, it was an interesting environment to be in
1: and and so you could you could be in that classroom and be vocal about your faith, even with classmates or a, a teacher who disagreed with you and not get cancelled or not get set aside and ostracized
2: yeah i mean. I, the school that I went to was a very uh, kind of academic, sort of prep school, but one of the things they prided themselves on was everyone being able to be different. And so to some extent, I think, I, you know, I got away with being different because I was I was Christian, and so people thought I was strange and had bizarre ideas, um, but I wasn't, I, I don't feel like I was ostracized for that. Um, and I was also pretty early on because I was having conversations about faith, um, and I was getting exposed to some, some really strong Christian thinking and kind of academic thinking, I was, I was more able to um, make my case in ways right, that, that people find harder to dismiss.
1: To, to be in the academy as, as you've been, I mean, to be at at Cambridge, to be uh, uh, part of Veritas Forum and working on, on American College campuses, you can't go onto these campuses with... Um, Kind of a simplistic apologetics you have to be ready to confront the issues that that you're confronted with in a way that is both academically rigorous and and winsome simultaneously right
2: yeah, and I think one of the things that it's really important for us to uh, think through as as we engage um you know whether it's with Christian friends in in college or whether it's with neighbors, who disagree with us whichever space we're in is we need to kind of look first at like, why do we and our non-Christian friend or colleague or, or neighbor actually really agree? Um, and because if you, if you don't start with identifying places where you and, and another person actually share beliefs, it's really hard for them to then consider uh, other beliefs that you, you might want to present to them. And what, what's fascinating is that actually a lot of the things that our non-Christian friend's, hold most dear in terms of their moral beliefs. So for example, the idea that all human beings are intrinsically sort of morally equal, or that, that men and women are equal, or that it, it's not right for the, the rich and the powerful to oppress the poor and the marginalised, but actually that the poor and the marginalised should be cared for and supported. We think today these are the kind of self-evident moral truths that you don't need Christianity to support. But actually, if you look at the, the history of thought, they've only come to us from Christianity. And if you rip that foundation out... You end up not having any any firm sort of secular basis for those beliefs. So there, there are a lot of barriers. Uh, if we look at any of the, the big kind of questions of our day, where actually we can start by saying to our friends, "Hey, uh, you know, you and I actually really share a deep belief. For example, in in justice, um, or in or in care for the poor and the quality of men and women, whatever whatever it might be. Um, I actually believe I believe that like, because I'm a Christian. You may think the Christian stands sort of opposed to those things. I should believe it because I'm a Christian." And all the, all the questions and, and issues that many of our non-Christian friends think that should be a complete, like, um, cancellation of Christianity because, you know, Christians believe X, Y, or Z. It, I think if you look at each of them more closely, they'll start to realize, hopefully, by God's grace, that actually the Bible gives us a more satisfying way of looking at those things than any alternative. So instead, instead of being a roadblock to faith, it actually becomes a signpost to of Jesus.
1: Maybe the biggest... Dividing line right now on on college campuses or on high school campuses where where there's a a, a marker here where a, a, a non Christian student will will automatically dismiss you is the issue of, of gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So so how do we find how do we find common ground in an area like that that gives us an opportunity to have meaningful conversation?
2: sexuality, a uh, very interesting guy um, uh, called Tom Holland. who's a British historian. He's sort of written about the history of Christianity over the last 2,000 years. And he makes the point that actually we, we even have debates around sexuality on the basis of shared Christian beliefs. For example, as I was mentioning earlier, the idea that, that everyone um, is, is equally valuable, men and women are equal, and the idea that... Uh, sex shouldn't be forced on other people as an assertion of power, which was really in the kind of Greco-Roman world that Christianity was born into. And um, that was very much the dynamic. There was no sense that, like, women were equal to men or that um, sex was really anything more than, than, you know, one person's power being asserted over another. Um, so there, are, uh, And, and the, the idea that actually minorities should be cared for and protected is a, is a profoundly Christian idea, even though there are ways in which it kind of gets applied and contorted today that, that don't align with Christianity. Um, I think it's, it's really helpful for us as Christians to, to look at what the Bible says about sexuality in terms of the whole big picture of the Bible to actually understand it, because often we, we only look at the things that the Bible says no to. Um, and, for example, I think the Bible is, is very clear that sex only belongs in male-female marriage and that actually same-sex marriage is not something that, that the Bible commits um, for Christians but for many today, that can feel like just a sort of random arbitrary rule that God made rather than having any real logic to it. But if we actually look at the big picture of the Bible, we find from early in the Scriptures this this metaphor, this picture of God as a faithful, loving husband and Israel in the Old Testament as his, his often unfaithful, sort of cheating wife. And then we see Jesus in the New Testament saying, here's the bridegroom. Um, we see this, this picture that, that Paul paints for us in, his letter to the Ephesians of of Christian marriage is like a little scale model of Jesus' love to his church. And we see even in the book of Revelation at at the end, this great cry going up that the wedding of the Lamb has come, and we see Jesus' marriage to his church sort of bringing heaven and earth back together at the end. So so the the reason that God made male and female in the first place, that the reason that he made such a thing as marriage and sex and, and attraction and all these things, is actually to tell us something about himself. And I think we need to start there, even as Christians, as we understand how this all fits together. Um, what I sometimes say to non-Christian friends is like, you yeah, know, I know you think that Christians are weird in their beliefs about sex, but actually we're a lot weirder than you think. <laughs> because it, it all starts with this incredible picture of God's love for his people, Jesus' love for his church. And when you have that picture in place, actually everything else starts to make a lot more more sense. Now, not to say that, therefore, you know, suddenly it's, it's palatable and acceptable. in in today's society, Um, but I think it's important for us to understand the kind of gospel logic to what the Bible says about sexuality. And then I think it's really important as well for us to take the kind of approach that New Testament authors take when it comes to questions of of sex, um, and especially in this this area of of same-sex sexuality. And it's so fascinating to me that Paul, who wrote many of the New Testament texts that specifically address um, same-sex sexuality, uh, he, rather than speaking as a sort of, um, in a certain extent on a moral high ground, he down on the sense of others, he says, right after um, naming same-sex sexual relationships as, as, as sinful in his letter to Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So he's actually not, he's not looking down on other people, he's actually He's the worst sinner he knows. (laughs) He's the -hmm. the worst sinner in town. Saved only to show that Jesus could save someone as bad as him. So I think in any conversation we're having about sexuality, especially with our non-Christian friends, we need to come not from a posture of sort of self-righteous moral high ground, which frankly, according to Jesus, none of us have. If anyone's looked at a woman lustfully, Jesus says he's already committed adultery. So, you know, bad news for basically all of us. Um, We have no moral high ground to stand on. But instead, we can be pointing people to Jesus as the lover of our souls and as the one to whom we can bring um, all our sin of, of, of every kind. Um, and I think, again, just last thought when it comes to questions of, of sexuality, I think it's really helpful for us to hear from people who, from, from brothers and sisters, um, faithful brothers and sisters, who really themselves experience same-sex attraction, so that it's not just a kind of them and us, scenario or um, you know something easily dismissed by our friends as where well, you're just you know a homophobic bigot who doesn't really understand um, so I'll often point friends to you know my best friend who came to Christ uh, out of a lesbian relationship when she was an undergrad at Yale um, and, and writes and speaks a lot on these issues or um, another friend of mine who's, who's always experienced same sex attraction as a man always been a Christian so he's chosen to turn away from that because of his faith in Jesus um, but is able to speak from a position of you know real understanding and empathy um, I have some of that myself i 've always been attracted to to women primarily rather than to men and I've, because i 've been a christian as as long as I can remember um, that 's always been something that um i 've turned away from and, and you know offered to the lord but mm. i think it's really it 's really easy for us to get into a kind of them and us mentality where you know we we make this uh um, Christians versus those people out there yeah and it, in one sense it is because we we 're having to live by and present to the world a very countercultural sexual ethic that says, yes, actually, sex does only belong in the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. But we need to recognize that even from the very first, you know, we see in Paul's letters to the Corinthians, we see that there are people in the first Christian communities who actually um, had a history of, of gay relationships. Yeah. So, so we must never assume that, you know, well, everyone at our church wouldn't be struggling with this issue um, it's just people out there. Actually, no, it's, it's, it's us in here. It's brothers and sisters, and we need to have as much um, love and care and support for our brothers and sisters who, who struggle with same-sex attraction as we have kind of biblical clarity on the issue.
1: Rebecca McLaughlin joining us this afternoon. We're talking about how we help our kids with these kinds of issues, and, and when we come back, I want to ask you, Rebecca, about your own kids, how you're preparing them, and then what you, how you have a, a gospel conversation when you're Thirteen years old, and somebody just says, "So you don't believe in gay marriage?" And that's all I want to ask. We'll we'll continue the conversation with Rebecca McLaughlin after this. We'll be back. We are back. Rebecca McLaughlin joining us this afternoon. I'm Bob Lapine. We're talking about the fact that back to school is around the corner, and. Uh, It's a different day for sending your kids back to school because the the polarization in the culture is also there in the classroom. And as parents, we've got to make sure that we are uh, sending our kids off armored up. Not necessarily like, son, you're going into battle today, but but you have to have them ready for the challenges that are going to be coming their way. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin is joining us. She is the author of... What I think is a book every mom and dad ought to get and read through, especially if you have teenagers, spend time at the dinner table, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity to help pour a, a solid biblical foundation under your child's life as they head back into the classroom. And Rebecca, you're a mom, right?
2: I am. Yeah.
1: How how old are your kids?
2: I have an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old girl and a 3-year-old boy.
1: (laughs) So 5th grade and 3rd grade, is that right?
2: Yeah, going into 6th, going into 4th, encountering all the questions that I address in my book already from their friends (laughs) and from their teachers.
1: (laughs) So are they in public schools?
2: Yes. Yes, they are.
1: Does that make you nervous?
2: No, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I went to very sort of secular schools growing up and and always had to kind of contend for the faith um, among my friends, and um, I'm personally a a big believer in kind of uh, equipping kids to be disciples early on, rather than trying to protect them from the big ideas out there, because I think actually we have um, resources within the Christian faith that are are so much more compelling than anything that the world has to offer that I'm I'm not really afraid of them hearing things from the rest of the world.
1: Have any of your kids had uh, challenges or encounters that have caused you to, the the stomach muscles tighten up in your mommy's stomach at all?
2: Yeah, I had my my 11-year-old last year at one point, a friend of hers, um, a good friend of hers said she didn't want to be her friend anymore because they disagreed about transgender questions. Um, and I think my daughter did a really good job of explaining what she believed as a Christian and um, also doing so in a way that was sort of loving and empathetic to her friend. Um, and thankfully, her friend actually changed her mind and decided that, that it wasn't something she wanted to lose the friendship over. But, yeah, it, it hurt my mom's heart to come home to my little girl in tears because one of her best friends had said she didn't want to be her friend anymore because of what she believed.
1: Eleven years old and friendships being is being broken over transgender issues. Correct. Rebecca, how did we get here?
2: Yeah, so I think it's, that's a really important question for us to, to ask and to understand, because I think it can feel so confusing for us as Christians today to feel like our beliefs aren't just seen as sort of strange and, and eccentric and like out of date, but actually immoral by, by many in our culture today. And And I think it actually traces back to the ways in which, you know, sadly um, white Christians have treated uh, our brothers and sisters of African-American descent historically, so that, you know, folks today can say, well, just as you Christians back in the 60s um, were using your Bibles to justify segregation, so now you're using your Bibles to justify uh, opposition to gay marriage or transgender identities. And I think we actually need to really recognize that the first half of that statement is, is true and, and there's real repentance that's needed there um, in order to be able to then have any kind of moral ground to stand on now. Um, and I think we need to recognize that, yeah, there's, there's this sort of sense of of, of righteous anger, actually, among um, our friends today that, that's channeled into questions of sexuality and gender because of that history of, of injustice that, that they see, you know, for example, the transgender rights movement today is seen as today's civil rights movement. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, because there were, there were so many ways in which um, many, many you know, folks like me, white evangelicals, actually really sinned um, it, when it came to civil rights, that actually now that's, that's come back to haunt us now. Mm. Um, but I think what's encouraging is to recognize that, actually, if we go back to the Bible, we see that just as strongly as the Bible stands against same-sex sexual relationships and, and affirms um, you know, male and female identities as distinct, it actually also very strongly pushes us towards racial justice and equality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we need to recognize, actually, the mistakes that Christians made in the 60s were because they weren't—not because they were too Christian, but because they weren't half Christian enough. <laughs> you know, wasn't right. because they were reading their Bibles too much, but they weren't reading their Bibles enough— And so today we need to not make the same mistake. We need to read our Bibles holistically and be as as vocal in our um, support of of racial justice and and integration as we are in our opposition to gay marriage, um, for Christians, and uh, transgender identities.
1: So here, let me give you an impossible assignment in in two minutes. Can we coach a mom on how she gets her 11-year-old daughter ready for the classmate who is going to say, wait, you don't believe in gay marriage? And how does she even know how to respond to that as an 11-year-old?
2: Yeah, I think, again, going back to what I mentioned in the earlier segment, we need to recognize that it's the gospel that actually stands behind what the Bible says about sexuality. And the, the reason why marriage is, is male-female is because uh, it's actually meant to be a picture of Jesus and the church, which is a love across difference, um, and, and that that's been sort of woven into humanity from, from the beginning. Um, and so I think we need to, to give our kids that, that gospel grounding first and foremost so that they start to understand. Yes. Um, I think we also need to recognize that far from condemning same-sex relationships, the Bible actually gives us an incredibly beautiful vision for same-sex relationships— that it's a vision of, of friendship it's not a, a, a sexual um an erotic vision or a romantic yes. exclusive vision but it is a vision of great intimacy and i think one of the ways in which as as christians i think this um in man, to our kids uh, we are so sort of brought into the idea that sexual intimacy the only real intimacy there and mm-hmm. i'd say that it would be so, so cruel to say to somebody well um, if you don't, you, know, you can't get married, therefore you're going to be lonely for the rest of your life. There's one thing Christians should never be, and that's lonely, because we should be living as one body together. And so I think we need to give our kids that bigger, positive vision of what the Bible says about same-sex um, closeness and friendship, um, and that, that gospel vision of what the Bible says about marriage, so that they actually have those um, underpinnings to any conversation about sexuality.
1: And let me just say, you do a great job of unpacking this in Chapter 7 of your book. And in all of the chapters, it's a book I think so important for so many parents to read. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for the time with us this afternoon. You've helped a lot of moms and dads and uh, so grateful for this. Again, Rebecca's book is called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. Thanks for being with us. And thanks to you for listening.